Welcome to the 9 to 5 Joy podcast. I'm Mappy Garcia. And I'm Christine Selby. We're on a mission to make work more joyful. And we do that through a series of intentional conversations with guests from all sorts of organizations and all sorts of roles. And we try to look at what are the things that contribute to joy in our work lives. Our guest today is Philippe DeBoer. He's an executive search partner in the nonprofit practice at DHR Global, and um, which is a major executive firm with international reach. He has deep expertise in recruiting CEOs and high-level executives to nonprofit organizations in the arts and the cultural sector. And uh, as a nonprofit management consultant, he advises clients on issues, on issues related to leadership, strategy, uh, compensation, employment contracts, succession planning, and uh, he contributes through leadership to the field with his research and his public speaking. So we are super excited to have you here today. Thank you. We're again doing an in-person session, which is very exciting to us. And um, we are very eager to hear everything that you and talk to us about. Well, thanks for having me. It is uh, it is a joy to be here. Amazing, I love it. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your trajectory, who you are, sure. and um, you know how you have come to be in Miami now? Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much. That was a great introduction. Um, it's uh, focused on my uh, career and, and vocation, which makes sense because I think that's the reason why you've invited me to your show. But <laughs> Uh, I'm not solely defined just by what I do for work. I'm uh, uh, a son, a grandson, a brother, an uncle, friend, neighbor, U.S. citizen, and these things uh, give meaning in my life as well. So I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I uh, did my undergraduate studies there. Um, spent uh, the rest decade or so of my life in Chicago and uh, had an opportunity in 2021 to take uh, sort of a, a year-long hiatus from work to pursue a one-year Master of Management degree in International Arts Management. This really unique program that I found that uh, took students from around the world and uh, gave us a global perspective on uh, the business side of the arts and culture sector. Um, so we traveled from Dallas to Montreal to Bogota to Italy, uh, India, all over the world. and. When I came back, had an opportunity to move wherever I wanted and decided I wanted Miami to be the next chapter in my life. So that brings me here at your studio. <laughs> amazing. Although his neighbor was Bogota. We have to say. I did not Bogota. It's a great city. It's a great city. It's hard to, to be. I know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but we're glad you landed in Miami. Mm -hmm. And um, really, really glad to have you here today. So I'm curious, so you know this podcast is about joy at work. It's 9 to 5 joy. It's about how do we create joy at work? Why is that important? And I'm curious, what resonated with you about that? Why did you said, decide, yeah, I'm going to spend my Tuesday night with Moppy and Christine talking about <laughs> joy at work? Well, you know, it's, it, I don't know how to spend a better Tuesday night than hanging out with Moppy and Christine talking about work. Cheers. Uh, seriously, but <laughs> Um, but no, really, it, uh, to me, it's it's an endlessly fascinating topic. And, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, incredibly compelling. I could spend, you know, a whole day talking about it with you guys. 
I think to answer your question, um, it might be helpful first to sort of define uh, what joy means to me in this context. Um, when we think of the word joy, we usually think of, you know, uh, sensations of pleasure and euphoria and happy feelings, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and these are all good things, but I think in the context of work, um, I think that uh, a more appropriate definition of joy would be like an alignment with your sense of purpose, you know, sort of a, a really deep-rooted satisfaction in what you do. Because I think that um, not, not that there's anything wrong with, with joy and, and happy feelings, but, uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to experience feelings of joy all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think in the context of, uh, of our work and, and, uh, vocation, um, defining joy as something that is, is like I say, like a, a deep rooted satisfaction in, in what you do is probably a more appropriate definition. And so then in that regard, um, you know, if I can get sort of philosophical for a moment, I think what makes, what makes this conversation really compelling is, um, I think that our work so closely relates to how we make meaning in our lives. Um, you know, we, as humans evolved to become these sentient beings and each one of us, as we grew up, became self-aware and you kind of realize, uh, you know, you, you show up on this plane of existence without, you know, much of a, a choice or say in the matter. And someday we're all going to depart this plane of existence. And so what you do in the meantime, um, like what is the meaning of life? To me, the meaning of life is to make meaning of life, um, you know, to find uh, what is your, your purpose? How do you make this time that you spend uh, in life meaningful? Um, and work is a, a huge part of how we do that, right? It's, you know, the majority of our time spent during the day is spent at work. And we work for a variety of reasons. We, we work, you know, partly because, um, you know, there was something about uh, the, the topic or subject that interested us, um, that we wanted to study it, perhaps. We were naturally allured to it. Um, it could be something that we found we were just good at, and you get a satisfaction out of that. Um, work, uh, can afford us, uh, a certain lifestyle. It allows us to provide for ourselves and for our families. Um, so it's usually a, a, some combination of all of those things of why we choose to work and spend our days, uh, doing something. And it's, it's a big way that we make our lives meaningful. And so why this is compelling is the, the idea of making the workplace joyful, um, for one, because, you know, like I say, it's, it's how we make life meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, there are a lot of studies that show that those who uh, experience the most joy or the most alignment with your purpose at work also tend to be the most effective right. and productive. Right. And so then that benefits the organization you're working for. Um, it benefits uh, society as a whole. Um, and so when you think, to me, at least when you think of it in that context, that's incredibly compelling. Right and makes this a really relevant conversation to, to constantly have and to think about. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you brought it up because, you know, purpose is some, definitely something that we've identified as an element, um, sort of building on team effectiveness and cohesiveness and, and joy. Mm -hmm. But as you were talking, I was thinking about 
you know, it's 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 interesting how maybe maybe one of the hypotheses that we could play with is um, the joyful workplace environment is that in which things are set up in a way that you are able to really you know fulfill your purpose yeah, in a way, right. right that 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 like sort of the infrastructure allows you to sort of be free up uh, like from other things that could be sort of interjecting and and, and and impacting you from connecting to that purpose and really fulfilling it. So right. I, I think that's a great way to think about it. Do you guys know who Seth Godin is? No. So Seth Godin is um, an entrepreneur. He's also just sort of considered like a, a thought leader. He's an author. He has a daily blog and um, has lots of opinions about uh, work and and life. And um, uh, he just announced this past week that he has a new book coming out called, I think it's called like The Songs of Satisfaction, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the I haven't read it yet, but the, the premise for it, I think, is that he interviewed or surveyed 10,000 people from 90 countries and asked them, you know, what makes something the best job that they ever had? Mm -hmm. And he found that it wasn't that they got paid a lot. It wasn't that they didn't have to work very hard. What made something the best job that they ever had was that they got to do something significant, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that's, I think, a, a great lesson for us to think about is that alignment with your purpose. How can we continue to you know, push away some of those things that are keeping us from really feeling like we're doing something right. meaningful and, and significant? And you've transitioned us to our next question. Oh. <laughs> that was very well played, very well played. Um, because the next question is, so speaking of things that are the most significant, we want we, we always want our guests to reflect a little bit and reflect on what is maybe the most joyful experience or time that they've had in a workplace setting and the least joyful experience. Um, so we would love to hear that from you. Yeah, um, great question. So I, I've, I've experienced both for sure, um, you know, good times and bad times in my career. Um, and they kind of came in phases. I can remember um, around 2014, 2015, uh, I was in a job with a very small organization that was being really affected by the economy. Um, so the budget was shrinking. Um, it was becoming more stressful. It wasn't paying very well. Um, had some leadership issues and I can remember feeling like I had so much more potential and, uh, ability to do something that was fulfilling and rewarding and feeling like I kept showing up day after day at this work without experiencing that feeling anymore. Uh, and so that certainly caused a lot of, you know, distress and honestly depression in my life at that time. Cause it's a miserable feeling when you kind of feel like you're stuck in this dead end job. Right. And, um, honestly, just a few years later, things really changed for me dramatically. Um, in 2015, I left that job and joined my current firm. And honestly, I, I didn't know if executive recruitment would be something that I would pursue long-term as a career. Mm -hmm. Um, but after a year, I started working with someone who had a really great management style, knew a lot about the industry, had a reputation for being a great mentor. And that was sort of like 
my aha moment when I was like, oh, here's, you know, a great chance for me to learn from someone to really dive into um, work that's exciting and interesting to me. We were working with all kinds of interesting nonprofit organizations, especially arts and cultural organizations, which is my passion. And so I asked him, you know, would it be okay if I start to sort of dedicate my time and work towards your practice? And I'll, you know, work as hard as I can. And, you know, uh, in response, all I ask is just that you you give me opportunity, that you teach me what you know. And things just really took off from there. I can remember 2017 and 2018 being really rewarding years for me, where I was having opportunities to do things that I'd never done before, um, to sort of stretch my wings, to prove myself. And it was all just, you know, very exciting and new and refreshing and, and rewarding for me. That's awesome. And I, it's interesting to hear you talk about that kind of like intrinsic motivation piece where you were saying like, I so resonate with this that I'm willing to go above and beyond and, you know, learn what I can and do what I can because I see that it connects to my purpose. And yeah. yeah. And then it sounds like too, some really good leadership. Right. And yeah. that's such an important piece of like, do we like the people we work for? I, I describe that. It, it, honestly, like it was such an indelible moment in my life. I, I, I describe it like my light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. You can imagine like in the cartoons, you have the light bulb above your head that clicks on when you kind of like have a brilliant, uh, you know, realization or revelation. And that was definitely it for me where I was like, aha, here's something that really marries well my skill set and abilities with my interests and passions and an opportunity where I'm going to be able to thrive and grow and prosper. Right. You know? And I keep thinking about the environment, you know, like the, there is this need to have, in order for you to be able to have that light bulb moment, you had to be in an environment that felt safe, where you felt supported, yeah. where, you know, you were able to explore and learn from somebody else, which I think brings back to like the other elements, right? But driving with purpose, I think it's, um, it's a, it's, it's, I, I'm thinking so much about <laughs> the power of it. Yeah. yeah. Because I had, I had thought of it again as one element, but now I'm seeing it as, you know, the driver and then everything yeah. else sort of supporting it. Right. When we talk right. about communication, when we talk about connection, it all basically allows you, I'm thinking of a plant as an analogy, you know, when you talk about like, why is the plant not thriving? Mm. It's not because of the plant. It's because of its environment. So if you have the proper environment, it allows you to connect to your purpose. It's why I'm hearing and I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so you work with executives. Mm -hmm. You work with recruiting executives. Um, and this month we're talking specifically about um, what we see as a potential disconnect, right, between the C-suite and employees who are not in the C-suite, right? The people doing the work, the day-to-day -day implementing things. Mm -hmm. um, so this question is, First, do you, do you agree, is there a disconnect um, between the C-suite and just organizational culture? And if mm. there is, what are the elements that you see in that? And and maybe the answer is sometimes there's a disconnect. Well, I think that there's always some level of disconnect between the C-suite and other ranks within an organization, just in terms of um, what the responsibilities are and objectives and, and priorities of those parties. Um, so if you're not in those other shoes or you have different priorities or, or things that you're focused on, um, it can sometimes be 
maybe difficult to empathize or understand with what the other party is doing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's certainly something that I'm seeing uh, a lot more noticeably, and it, it's being backed up by a lot of research too, is that there's a, at least a generational disconnect that's happening in the workplace these days. So you have a new emerging generation, Gen Z, who's coming into the workforce, who, by the way, you know, someone was pointing this out to me the other day, and I hadn't really thought about it, but when they pointed it out, it was just like an incredible to, thing to think about. But there's a generation of people now who are three years into their professional lives who have not learned yeah. office etiquette, right? Because, you know, for many of them, they began their careers during the pandemic working from home and maybe their organizations never shifted back. And so just that whole, you know, <laughs> etiquette and expectations yeah. of what you do uh, showing up to a nine to five job at an office is just like a boring concept. Well, <laughs> what do you mean workplace attire? Yeah, yeah. Showing up on time and yeah, all of it. Um, and so I think there's definitely a disconnect there. You know, there are always generational divides. Not that that generations are are monoliths, and there's not um, examples of you know uh, individuality. But there are general trends that are true for each generation. And what we know about Gen Z, at least, is that um, you know, this is the first generation that did not know life before the internet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the most educated generation. Um, it's a generation that tends to care a lot about um, identity and um, the ability to express oneself is something that's really important to them. Um, it's also a generation that we know uh, experiences a lot of anxiety and, uh, and loneliness and isolation. And so, and and the, so the, the the values are different as well. And I think with with this generation especially that's coming into the workforce, I think that they view work differently than generations before them did. Um, and I am seeing examples in in the workplace where there's that sort of like that disconnection where it's almost like we're speaking different languages, sort of like a huh, you know, <laughs> what? Why is this an issue? Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So what do you think contributes to that? What do you think contributes to some of, is it just generational or are there other things that contribute to some of the disconnect? That's a good question. I think that there, yeah, I mean, I feel like we are experiencing a lot of transition in general mm -hmm. as a society right now. Like it really feels like the last three years, especially have just been a blur. Mm -hmm. And when you think about a lot of the, advances in things like AI, automation, robotics, things like this. I mean, just, uh, was, it, was it yesterday, Apple released their Apple Vision Pro headset. Um, and so I think that people are waking up and realizing that it, it sort of feels like we're moving at, at light speed and things are changing very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you go through traumatic experiences like a pandemic and when things are changing very rapidly, um, maybe you're not growing together. Mm -hmm. And when there are those existing hierarchical right. disconnects yeah. and generational disconnects within an organization, there's not that natural time to sort of adjust and communicate and understand each other. It just feels like 
it's much more abrupt, maybe. Right. That's right. a good word. That is a great point. Yeah. And it's a great side to Honor's question, which, um, you know, since from your position as somebody who's recruiting, you know, high level executives for nonprofits. So you work with organizations to identify the best fit right. for them, right? In order, like, have you identified or in the experience that you've had, what are those skill sets that you have seen organizations sort of prioritizing or looking for? And are there skills that are related to maybe bridging that gap and supporting that sort of um, identifying ways to address that disconnect and to maybe, you know, speed up like the ways in which high like executives and leadership can embrace and really, because like you, you made also a very good point about, you know, all the um, potential and all the like really good things that those gen younger generations and yep. those people can bring to the workplace, right? So is there anything that you have identified for organizations prioritizing with regards to skill set mm. in those um, leaders that they are trying to find that will sort of address that? Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I can't think of like one or two universal examples that every client is seeking in their candidate. Um, and maybe it would be helpful for the listener just in case they don't understand what executive search is or how it's done. Um, so, uh, an executive search partner like myself operates like a, a third party contractor or consultant where the organization hires me to conduct a search to recruit from the field, uh, candidates to fill an open position that they have within their organization. And I think that one thing that is often misunderstood about executive recruitment is maybe people assume that the job is just simply to find the best candidate for each job, right? Mm -hmm. But I liked what, what you said before, you used the word fit, finding the best fit. I think that's really the key of what we do. So we spend a lot of time with the client upfront, understanding their specific situation, uh, the kind of challenges and threats and opportunities and and things that they're dealing with as an organization, what went well or didn't go well with the previous person in this position. And then that helps kind of define what they're looking for next. Um, so we spend a lot of time upfront kind of getting a, a profile of what the organization's looking for. And then we, we go out into the market and conduct original research and identify people who are usually, you know, very happy in their jobs and aren't looking to make a transition, mm -hmm. but we call them up and explain this other opportunity and that it's a matter of figuring out, you know, what is it about the opportunity that's attractive to the candidate? And do they fit that profile very well of like the, the best fit that the organization is looking for? So long and short is I feel like every situation is unique in terms of what organizations are looking for. It just really depends on the organization um, the, the, the situation that they're in and, and what the market can bear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you say though, that they are, there are elements regarding, um, leaders that are able to maybe adapt or that, um, there is any special attention played to soft skills and, you know, the type of like non-typical, 
uh, things that people will think of a uh, high-level executive has yeah. that have maybe come up more recently because of the whole, you know, great resignation, um, you know, like situation that we've seen or post-COVID work yeah. uh, environments and adjustments that organizations have had to make? Yeah, I think that um, finding someone who uh, can adapt to the environment around them is really important. Mm -hmm. And as we just mentioned, it feels like the environment is changing out yes. more rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for instance, I can think of an example um, where I recruited an executive director this past year to an organization who um, was taking matters of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes. a lot more seriously. And they wanted someone who uh, held those values and was committed to uh, enacting some of those values at the organization. It was also an organization where they had uh, a lot of um, staff in their early to mid-20s who were kind of out of work in that Gen Z kind of a generation. Um, and so they wanted someone who could kind of help bridge that divide, someone who could work very well with uh, a board of directors were, you know, typically from a different generation and status of life and, and you know, easily uh, as well working with uh, different generations. So I think that sort of adaptability, flexibility is is something that will be valued at, at organizations in, in a time like this. Right. Now on the side of the recruit, right? Like, so you said uh, you could be approaching people that maybe are happy at their current position, yep. but you identified some things that are matching and that are could be a good fit for the organization that you're high, that you're recruiting for. Are there conversations where the re potential recruits are driving around, you know, what they consider well-being in an organization and are they ways in, the, in which they are prioritizing or maybe negotiating with organizations around you know, ways in which they can be given some sort of certainty that they are going to be, that their own needs are going to be met and they're yeah. coming to an environment that's conducive to well-being? Well, I think, you know, one thing that I can say about the market right now is that, excuse me, this is definitely an employee's market that we're in, mm -hmm. meaning um, uh, executives, employees these days tend to have their pick of opportunities to choose from much more so than other times when I've been a recruiter. Um, unemployment right now is at its lowest level since 1969. Inflation is up, I think, about 5% or so right now, but wages and salaries have been consistent with that. And so basically, you know, uh, employees right now, you know, sometimes when I call on people for an opportunity, they can also have another two or three recruiters uh, pitching an opportunity to them. And so that you, when you're in a position like that, you can be a lot more selective about what kind of opportunity you would be willing to consider. Mm -hmm. um, we're also finding in today's market that candidates are more reluctant than at any other time that I can think of, more reluctant to relocate. Um, you know, a lot of people either took advantage of the low interest rates from a few years ago to refinance their mortgage or bought a new home or find themselves in a situation where they can basically do most of their work from home. So why would you move and relocate across the country for an opportunity? So certainly I'm, I, I'm finding that uh, uh, candidates are being a lot more selective about the kind of opportunities. 
very interesting. And are they bringing up specific things? Are they saying, hey, I really am looking for this or hey, I'm looking for an organization that's going to give me this thing? Yeah, but I don't know that there are any like universal, consistent mm -hmm. things that I've seen in the market necessarily. Yeah. I think for everyone, yeah, there is something that they're looking for. They'll need like a really good opportunity in order to give up what they're currently doing. Mm -hmm. So they'll either if they're a CEO, they'll want to know what the board is like, who's on the board, what the reputation is. Um, they'll want to know what the finances of the organization are. I think um, just doing a lot more due diligence about what's been going on at the organization. Is this really a place where I'm going to thrive? Because I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, well, well, one thing that we have seen, you know, one reaction to the George Floyd protests of 2020, boards of, this is, so nonprofit world is the, the realm that I'm familiar with. And I saw absolutely a trend in response to those protests and that movement of hiring um, usually African-American or BIPOC uh, CEOs to their organizations. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing now about three years later, a lot of those people who were hired to those jobs either getting fired or quitting or getting burnt out. And it has to do with the fact that the, the board or the organization, although they were committed to filling those positions with BIPOC people, they hadn't done the work to change the, the culture mm -hmm. of the place. So the, the individuals were networked, they were not set up to succeed and to thrive. You know, they were dealing with um, unconscious bias and uh, unfair expectations and double standards and prejudice, et cetera, et cetera. During you know what was a difficult time to run an organization for anyone, um, so that's certainly something like a, a trend that I've seen. So I think that people are maybe more skittish and selective about really making sure if I leave this great job that I have right now, where I'm happy, move my family or make this transition, I really want to be sure that this next place is going to be a place where I'm set up to succeed and do well. Right, yeah. right, that makes sense. And um, what you were saying also made me think back a little bit. So in the, like sort of moving a little bit away from your role um, as a consultant right now uh, and thinking about what you've done research wise, right? So um, I understand that you wrote your thesis around management uh -huh. of um, arts specific yeah, organizations. Yeah. And um, I'm curious going back a little bit to that conversation about the gap, because I think that what you're bringing up also comes back to you know, sometimes organizations in general, I think this applies to the AI, but it also applies to many other challenges or dynamics that happen with the organization. Yeah. It is that they may approach organizational culture, HR type of, you know, issues as checking the box, right? Mm. So um, let's say that, you know, they've noticed that people are unhappy with, um, I don't know, the amount of time off that they get. So they just make a decision across the board about, you know, revising their time off. Or um, there are issues between, you know, a supervisor and their staff. And instead of maybe identifying, you know, the dynamics that are at play, they just make sure that HR talks to that person and, you know, uh -huh. clears the air or whatever the case may be, as opposed to approaching those things in a more systematic way. Uh -huh. And I think that 
it speaks very well to the issue that you were bringing up as far as people bringing into these positions, coming in and identifying environments that were not necessarily taking the whole diversity, <laughs> inclusion and um, equity uh, theme, like really structurally and approaching it and really making changes that will support uh, sort of at different levels and that will support those leaders that were coming in. Uh, but they just check the box of, oh, now we have like a leader that, you know, we found with these characteristics and that's going to fix the issue. Uh -huh. So I think that that actually has a lot to do with the disconnect because what happens is that people in leadership positions are assuming that because they are checking the box, mm. the culture should be okay and people should be happy. And then people at maybe lower ranks may be experiencing that as unauthentic and not really, you okay. know, real yeah absolutely <laughs> um and then you know it's still feeling like the culture is not what they expect it to be and it's not conducive to them being able to fulfill their purpose uh -huh. so from your research experience what are your thoughts about the type of qualities or the questions that organizations or people in leadership positions should be asking themselves uh -huh. in order to you know like sort of make significant like changes around the way in which they approach culture? Yeah, that's it's such a great question. Um, well, I think that you're definitely onto something. I think that's, you know, part of the, the disconnect is that there's been sort of a, a betrayal or maybe an erosion of trust between, um, you know, employees and organizations. If you, try to empathize or, or put yourself in the shoes of a member of the Gen Z generation right now. You think about, you know, the, the hordes of um, student debt uh, that they accumulate. The value of their undergraduate degree is worth less than it's ever been before. And yet, like I said, this is like one of the most educated generations that our society has ever had. The middle class of our society has been completely eroded it's more, it takes longer and is more difficult than ever to, to buy a home and to sort of kind of move forward in your career. Um, you know, corporations uh, will slash jobs. Uh, earlier this year, the whole tech sector slashed thousands of, of jobs. And I think, you know, people are kind of waking up and realizing like this, the system isn't really working for me the way it did for my parents' generation. And so I think when there's an erosion of trust like that, it's important to try to mend that divide and, and heal that, right? Yeah. And that's something else that we're seeing in, um, in, in studying uh, uh, workplace perspectives and, and some of these generations is there's more than ever like uh, an expectation of CEOs to take on a much more vocal even like political mm -hmm. role um, to vocalize and demonstrate to your employees that you understand their perspectives, that you share their values, you care about the same things that they care about. And I think that, you know, CEOs and other executives would do well to heed that because what we're also seeing, I think it's like 60%, maybe 67% of people right now uh, believe that they have the power to affect change within their organization and will be willing 
to do something about it, you know, whether it's quiet quitting or resigning, choosing a new opportunity or doing something much more vocal and protesting something that's happening at the organization. Um, and so absolutely, I think in that regard, CEOs and other executives need to be uh, a lot more at the forefront and not just, you know, checking things off a box, but really demonstrating to people that you understand what they care about. You can empathize with their situation and you're, you know, truly putting some action behind it. Right. Yeah. That's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that piece of CEOs being asked to be more vocal um, and how that can, it can play both ways, right? Like it can play depending on what you're being a vocal about and who resonates with you and who doesn't. Um, there can be a lot of impact, but I think getting to that values piece is so important mm -hmm. because people do want to feel, I think, the, the piece about like getting the best out of people when people feel connected to their values they feel like they can thrive mm -hmm. that's when that's when you get it right mm -hmm. so i think that it's like a dance for seeing you it's definitely a dance yeah. yeah um thank you this has been amazing thank you um we have one last question okay if you had to summarize you get a billboard you get 30 seconds um i mean we have millions of listeners here and uh we want you to give a 30 second piece of advice for other organizational leaders um who are looking to increase their understanding of employee well-being um and ways that they can support the organization the leaders the management in in creating joyful environments how would you summarize in 30 seconds Oh, well, it's ready timing here right now. Okay, ready? So, I think, you know, something for all of us to prioritize as we head into, I think, a period of life that's really uncertain without being melodramatic about it. It can really feel like we're in like late stage capitalism, late stage democracy when you see what's happening in our country, especially. So, I think as we, you know, uh, move forward in this period of volatility, um, doing so with humanity is really important and I believe will pay off. So always proceeding with and prioritizing humanity, generally speaking. Specifically, I think that CEOs and other executives would do well to also practice transparency and empathy. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I remember we we read this uh, article from Deloitte that had done this really interesting study. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there's a way we'll that you can link it so your viewers, because it's really, really interesting. Where was I going with that? Um, hang on. I lost my train of Transparency and empathy. Transparency and empathy. Oh, so what was so what I found really interesting about that article was um, a lot of the executives who were surveyed felt like their employees understood or recognized that the executives were doing things to make a better workplace culture, but the employees did not feel that way. So, you know, talk about a, a disconnect. And I think that um, one way to do that with transparency and empathy is to find ways to communicate, whether it's sort of like a, a town hall where you're getting everyone together, whether it's like a, a, a private confidential survey that you fill out of your employees, whether it's like one-on-one -on -one individual meetings with your direct manager, I think providing a, a diverse array of those kinds of examples where you're really listening to your employees and demonstrating that you care. And, and once you, you know, 
find out how they're feeling than really, you know, doing something and communicating what it is yes. is important. But I think you also talked, you, you mentioned words um, such as... That was definitely not 30 seconds. I feel that obsessed. I just love, you know, like this idea of transparency, humanity. Yeah. Um, we've heard a lot about authenticity, you know, and... It's so interesting for some reason, again, when you start paying attention to something, you start seeing all of these examples, but we as humans have such a strong and quick ability to identify when somebody is not being authentic. Yeah. And you know, I, it's tricky because you cannot fake it. Right. And when you're checking the box, when you're just trying to um, you know, communicate to others that you are listening, that but you're not really. That I feel is even worse than if you were not. Right. Then begin. Right. Going back to your point about trust, that you cannot trust like that that person is coming from a genuine place. Yeah. So, it to me is just like this very tricky situation because it almost feels like, how can we go back to authenticity? Yeah, You know, it shouldn't be that hard because, you know, we are who we are and we should be able to just show up as who we are. But I believe that, and maybe it's a generational thing too, uh, sometimes when you get to those levels of leadership, there are politics at play, there are, you know, ideas that you have about sure. how you should behave that maybe have an impact on you being able to show up as your authentic self. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think that's why, you know, after reading that article, I felt like, um, uh, executives and organizations who take the time to get to know their employees and create those channels of communication will benefit. Because as I read that, it, it reminded me a little bit of like a relationship between two people. And maybe you have one person in the relationship who's uh, a bit passive. And they think they're dropping all kinds of clues to their partner. Uh, 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 I'm not really happy. And they're, the, the partner's just not picking up on it. Right, yeah. um, and I think, you know, in a workplace setting, it's probably, you know, because you're self-censoring yourself or you're fearful of retaliation or, you know, you don't, you know, you, you don't know how to communicate what, what you're really stealing. Um, but by, you know, uh, the C-suite and, and organizations taking that time in, in different ways, uh, to interact with their employees, to understand where they're coming exactly. from, what issues they're feeling, and communicate that back to say, we heard you, this is what we heard, and this is what we're going to do yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. right? We'll really restore that that trust that yeah. we talked about has been eroding. Yeah. Ah, lovely. Good. Much better than the 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> a good way, a very good way to wrap up here. Thank you for being here. Yeah, we're so, so grateful. Um, and this is amazing. Yeah. Is we loved it and uh, we'll be sharing, you know, snippet stuff, uh, everything that we talked about. And of course, the whole episode uh, and our listeners, I'm sure, are going to be very, very happy. Thank you very much for having me. I, I hope to be back on your, your podcast someday. Yes, we're going to talk about purpose and you're probably going to have to come back. To okay, terrific. <laughs> I'll save the day. Thank you. <laughs> So thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for tuning in. Please go listen to the other episodes um, and stick with us. So subscribe to our social media, our LinkedIn, Instagram, um, TikTok. We would love to see you there. And until next time, spread the joy. Spread the joy. Hey.